Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. We're talking about the four biggest questions in life. And today, we're going to deal with the third question, which is the question of morality. What is right and what is wrong? I mean, how can I tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong and who decides what is right and wrong? Hello there, and welcome to the Believer's Church Podcast. A podcast about real people, real problems, and real answers. Podcasting from the beautiful East Tennessee Mountains. Here's your host, Pastor Mike Friday. You know, the majority perspective in our country and for much of our world today is found in this statement by an atheist, and this is what she said, I quote, I've been told that without God there can be no morals, and that as an atheist, I can have no morals. I disagree. I believe in love, hope, honor, loyalty, honesty, trust, respect, etc. Those things don't come from God. They come from within and from human interaction. If you need God to tell you what is wrong and what is right, and you can't figure it out on your own, then you may be part of the problem, end quote, she said. Now, this atheist has indeed put the question squarely in front of us. You know, can you have objective morality without God. Well, believe it or not, there is a story in the Bible that tells us, tells us exactly what can and does happen when you take that approach. And not only see it played out in this strange kind of weird story, but you see it played out every day all over our nation, all over our world. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19, let me just tell you, what I'm about to tell you in this story uh, is easily PG-13, if not R, if not even more than that. And this story takes place in the nation of Israel. Now, remember this. During this time, there is no king, there's no central government, and there are 12 tribes, with each tribe like a separate nation or jurisdiction within its own laws. Well, actually, they did have a king, that's God, and they did have a law, his commandments, but they had discarded God and disobeyed his law. Uh, so this story just has a crazy beginning. Judges chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judea and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Now, so what we have here is there's this Levite who was the custodian of God's law, meaning he was a priest who was supposed to be a man of God, but he wasn't. He ended up being very wicked here. He had this concubine was what we would call today a legalized mistress. And she wasn't his wife, but she performed all the duties of a wife. For some reason, God allowed this, but he never encouraged or approved of it. And the concubine, in effect, becomes an adulteress, and she cheats on her master. So to escape her husband's vengeance, she flees to her father's house in Bethlehem, and after four months, the Levite begins to miss her, his mistress, and then he goes after her. Now, strangely enough, her father doesn't seem to care that she's a concubine, or care that she has committed adultery. I mean, he and the son-in-law kind of partying it up for a few days, and then the son-in-law decides to take her home. So they leave Bethlehem, and they come to Jerusalem, which is only a few miles away. It was uh, close to dark. 
And the master's servant suggests they stay in Jerusalem, but the Jebusites had taken over Jerusalem, and it was now a Gentile city, and being an Israelite, he wouldn't feel safe there, so they decided to go on to a town called Gabeah. Now, when they arrived in Gabeah, they go to a city square and they sit. Now, it was a custom of the day that if someone was sitting alone in the city square, they needed hospitality. You know, the Mideast law of hospitality stated that you had to take them in, but Gabeah was full of, you know, not really nice people, and nobody took them in. But they finally met this old man who isn't even from Gabeah. He's from Ephraim, and the old man takes them into his home. Now, you up to this point, yeah, PG-13, right? Children, cover your ears. Look at verse 22 through 25. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, there are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Now, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man do not this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night long until the morning, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. Now, there's not really much to say to this point. Kind of what it is is what it is. One of the most vile, wicked scenes, I think, in the Bible. But it gets worse. Trust me. Look at verses 26 through 28. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was, until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up. Let us be going. There was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey. The man rose up and went away to his home. Now, this gutless coward of a man not only sleeps through the night while his concubine is being raped and abused, but when he finds her lying at the door, he simply tells her to get up, not realizing she's even dead. Now, obviously, he's angry. Not over her abuse, though, but he's, over his, he's angry over his loss, and he wants revenge, but he knows he can't take revenge by himself. I mean, his concubine has been raped, murdered, and justice must be done. Revenge has got to be taken. Now, to make sure that all of his fellow, fellow Israelites throughout the land will back him, here's what he does, verses 29 and 30. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened nor been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Can you imagine? Mission accomplished. If you received a box, with a body part in it. I mean, 11 tribes are just royally ticked off, and they're going to see to it that justice is done. And they formed this army of 400,000 men, and they took three vows. Here's the three vows that they took. Number one, no one will go home until Gabeah is attacked and destroyed. Vow number two, 
Anyone who does not join against Gabeah will be killed. And then number three, no one will allow his daughter to marry anyone from the tribe of Benjamin. Now keep that last one in mind. So at this point, a reasonable demand's been made. Now, Judges chapter 20, verses 12 through 13. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is it that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gabeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So what they wanted here were the guilty parties, but amazingly, the Benjaminites defended them. They're willing to fight against what is right and fight for what is wrong. It's just all messed up. And because of time, we're going to skip ahead in the story here. And after actually two unsuccessful attacks in which 2,000 Israelites were killed, on the third attack, they were successful. They killed about 600 Benjaminites who escaped, but they're not done. Now, verse 48 of chapter 20. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, the city, the men, the beast, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So they killed, listen, everyone and everything, including animals in every town in the, in the region of Benjamin. And they burned the cities literally to the ground. A scorched earth policy on steroids here. The Israelites do have a conscience, though. And now they realize that they've almost wiped out an entire tribe. And their sense of family kind of kicks in. They realize that they don't want to be responsible for the total disappearance of one of the 12 tribes. They're, well, let's just look at this, because they knew that there were 600 male Benjaminites left who had escaped, and they needed women to marry in order to continue to propagate the tribe and survive. But the problem is they had taken that oath. Remember that they would not give any of their daughters' wives to them. Then they remembered something. Look in chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord of Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. Now, Jabesh Gilead had not sent anyone to fight, so what did they do? Instead of asking Jabesh Gilead if they would at least contribute some of their daughters for marriage to these men, this is what happened. Look at verses 10 through 11. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones, this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. They went into one of their own cities and killed every man, woman, and child except for 400 virgins and gave them to the wives to the Benjaminites. But there's still another problem. There's 200 Benjaminites still don't have wives. So what do they do? Well, they remembered that there was an annual festival of the Lord in a place called Shiloh. And they gave them permission to go up to the festival and kidnap any woman they wanted to take as a wife and force them into marriage. In return, they would simply tell the fathers of those women, since you did not go to war, we will not kill you in exchange for your daughters. And so the story ends. Wow. Without question, one of the most disgusting, degrading stories in all the Bible. There's not one hero. There's not one great character. It's just amazing. 
crazy. And yes, it is an unbelievably kind of sordid, shocking, sad conclusion. Almost mind-boggling. And look at verse 24 of Judges 21. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. You mean after the rape, the killings, the genocide, the mutilation, and the indifference to all of it, everybody just goes back to business as usual? Yep, listen to this, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So these three chapters give us the ugliest story in the Bible, and yet every stage, at every stage, they're acting on what they thought was right in their own eyes. Listen to this. As far as the men of Gabeah were concerned, rape was all right. To the farmer and the Levite, homosexual rape was unthinkable, but heterosexual rape was acceptable. The men of Benjamin thought it was right to defend what was wrong. The Israelites thought it was right to massacre innocent men or innocent women and children and kidnap women and force them into marriage. It never occurred to any of them they were doing what was wrong because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It doesn't say that every man did what was wrong in his own eyes, but what was right. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. You cannot have real and true morality without God. I mean, when God's not in the picture, anything goes and everything goes. I mean, when you try to make right and wrong a matter of human choice, human reason, or human decision, you're just out there and it's not going to work. And I would just say one of two things is true. Either what is right is what is right in our eyes, or what is right is right in God's eyes. I want to give you three reasons why only with God can you have morality. Ready? Number one, these are kind of universal. Probably not the first time you've heard these. Number one, there are moral values we should believe in. Now, again, I understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying. You have to believe in God in order to believe in what is good and to try and do good. I'm not saying you cannot formulate a standard of values that may be good that people should live out, you know, without God. Nor am I saying that you have to believe in God to believe that morality does exist. So the question is not the fact of goodness. The question is the foundation of goodness. So to say that there is right and wrong, that is always right and that always wrong means that someone with universal authority declares it to be right or wrong, regardless of what other people may think. Now, we believe the Holocaust was wrong. Adolf Hitler believed he was doing the world a favor by putting Jews in gas ovens. Now, if there is no God, it doesn't matter what opinion you may have, right? It really doesn't. I mean, if I can never tell you what is right, and you can never tell me what is wrong, then that means there can be no final, ultimate objective, right or wrong. That leaves us to do what's right in our own eyes. But God's given us what is right and what is wrong. They're found in his commands and his commandments. He tells us what we can and we should do, and he tells us what we can't and we shouldn't do. And what he tells us is he tells is the same thing that he tells everybody for all time. It's the same. It's not like he's picking and choosing. It's one thing for all time. Let me give you these other two really quick. Number two, there are moral virtues we should live by. 
you know, over the last several de- decades, anthropologists have done an exhaustive survey of the various cultures of the world. One of their most fundamental findings was morality is universal. Scholars have never found a culture, past or present, that doesn't have some system of morality. It's like the standards of morality may differ from one culture to another, or even with culture within a culture, but every culture knows the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what it should be doing, what it shouldn't do. And Jesus even said that those moral virtues we, we should live by can be summed up in one word. And that one word just flows in two different directions. That word is love. It should flow vertically. According to Jesus, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, mind. It should flow horizontally. We should love our neighbors ourselves. Because when you follow those two commandments, you know what you'll find? You'll find loyalty, honesty, love, generosity, and sacrifice. The last thing is this. There is a moral vision we will be judged by. So let me tell you, uh, final reason why God is necessary for true morality. You ready? If there is such a thing as right and wrong, if there is such a thing as moral and immoral, only with God will people be held morally accountable for their actions. You see, only with God can we know that evil and wrong will be punished and goodness and righteousness will be rewarded. With God, we know that the scales of justice will be balanced. Let's just suppose without God you could have morality. Can I ask you a question? What good is morality without accountability? If this life is all there is, I mean, what difference does it make whether you live like Billy Graham or Adolf Hitler? I mean, without God, those rapists that we read about, they got away with it. Those who were guilty of genocide got away with it. Without God, these Islamic terrorists, they get away with it. Without God, unjust judges, crooked politicians, and religious hypocrites get away with it. Let me tell you the major reason why I'm convinced that without God, you're just out there when it comes to what's right and what's wrong. It's Jesus Christ on the cross tells me and tells you that forever there is a right and there is a wrong. He died for the wrong so that we could be made right. And he and he alone decides which is which. Amen. You know, every pilot is taught one very basic lesson at the beginning of their training uh, in an air traffic control zone. You don't do what seems right in your eyes. You do what the control tower tells you to do. And there's a simple reason for that. The control tower knows things that the pilot doesn't know. The controller has the right information and the right perspective to guide that pilot to do the right thing. Now, ethically, morally, and spiritually, everything seems to be changing in our culture. There's a lot of confusion out there. And you can fly by the seat of your pants, live by your own rules, and do what's right in your own eyes, and it's going to end up in disaster. I'm just telling you. But we have a controller, and his name is Jesus. He's given us all that we need, a manual, which is the Word of God. And with his power... And by his guidance, we can not only know what is right, listen, we can do what is right. Thanks for joining us on this last message. The four biggest questions in life. See you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Believer's Church Podcast. Visit us online at www.believerschurch.tv Facebook.com slash believerschurch.tv Follow Pastor Mike at twitter.com slash mikefriday and instagram.com slash mfreallife Check out the other podcasts all about life and the world. Until next time, keep it real and come on.